This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Good afternoon, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, a.k.a. Jackie P., a.k.a. The Jackman. I'm actually called none of these things besides maybe Jack. That's my first name. Uh, anyway, enough about the etymology of that because this is Limit Up, the podcast where we talk about markets, futures, forex, and trading psychology with some of the best in the industry. Today is certainly no exception. Dan, you know why that is? I don't, Jack. Why don't you fill me in? Okay. Talking to Jeff Carter today, we have an extremely accomplished guest who also happens to be named Jeff. Yes, this is a Jeff on Jeff interview. Jeff squared. Jeff times duh. But before I reveal the identity of the guest, let me tell you a little bit about his background. All right. He has a PhD in economics from a little place called MIT. Heard of it. Yeah. He was a senior economist for the White House Council on Economic Advisors. Interesting. Okay. Here comes the reveal. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is none other than the dean of the Geese College of Business at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, Jeff Brown. Oh, well, I'm excited to hear this uh, interview. That's right. I can't wait to see Jeff and Jeff go at it. Um, but before we get to that, uh, let's take a gander at the markets really quick. I, as you may have noticed, have Dan in the co-pilot seat in a rare Hodgman market reaction. So, uh, Dan, I understand that something happened yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, I recall it being mildly important. Yes, we broke into a whole new uncharted territory in all equity markets, but I think in particular the S&Ps broke above that 31 mark, and they've uh, really delved into their, their 30s. The 20s are long behind them now. They're into their 30s, and there's no turning back at this point. Yeah, we are solidly entrenched <laughs> in, the, in the 3,000s after what seemed like, uh, what was it, like two years was the first time we were teasing that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, too, I mean, I... Uh, wrote a whole blog about it yesterday about like 31 thoughts I had about it. And uh, it only briefly went above 3,100. Then it went right back down. It checked it out. It said enough's enough. It's tried again a couple times. But uh, so it's interesting. You think about it, 3,100. Now we're just talking about a number. And that's a big number in a lot of people's head. We're breaking. There's two zeros before we get to our quarter ticks. So we're still two solid zeros. It's something in the industry called a, a BFRN, big fat round number. And I kid you mm. not, it stands out. It's a visual. It's everyone's looking at it. So if you think about it, a lot of people are going to look for people to enter when they enter into that that territory of a new BFRN, big fat round number. You're going to look for a lot of new buyers to come in and say, oh, we're entering in a new territory. You're going to see it get exciting and the sellers are going to come in and push that market back through. So just because it's a whole new world we're entering, there's still going to be extreme resistance to see acceptance. We saw it with 3,000. The market went into 3,000 and instantly sold off. Uh, you're going to see it time and time again. Every time this market enters into these BFRNs, it is a big deal and there's going to be extreme resistance always trying to get through. Yeah, when you see these big fat numbers too, big fat round numbers, round numbers. too, it's sometimes I think in an effort to... Uh, you know, put something more behind it than just a stupid like, hey, it's at 3,100 now. Right. Uh, people will be like, oh, the real resistance is at like 3,104, you know, based on all these things. Right. It's like people are all look, – we're all looking at the same market. Everyone sees that right. 3,100. Go home. It's 31. We all know it. 3,100. And give yourself a couple points on either side. At the end of the day, I think if you're trading at that level, wait for it to establish something. Don't just jump in because you're excited, um, which is very easy to do. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see this level tested again. And uh, right now, you know, I'm just going off the cuff here, but I really love this channel right now when I'm looking at the S&Ps, that 30, uh, 3075 on our low end, it has been checked countless times over the last week and a half. Um, it's really created a great level to keep your eye on there. And then if you have a high side of 31, keeping an eye on those extremes and watching how the market reacts around them, I think, uh, of course, I'm saying this on Wednesday. Tomorrow and Thursday, it's going to break below 75 or rally well, well through 31. <laughs> well, you know, granted, we're not supposed to be, you know, giving advice or whatever. But, like, I kind of myself, too, see it kind of sticking around here probably for the rest of the year. You know, I won't say it's sticking around. When I talk, when I look at these markets, to me, it's 
those levels aren't a high and a low. I, I look at them as inflection points at the end of the day. Like every level, you call it support and resistance. Use what you want at the end of the day. It's how does this market react? And to me, it's going to cause two things are going to happen when it comes into a pivotal area like this or an inflection point. Either it's going to create a springboard that market's going to find find it as a a board and it's going to hit and bounce and re- retrace in the other direction really quickly, or it's going to create as an accelerant and that market's going to get to that level find new buyers or sellers depending on the direction it's going and it's going to accelerate and pick up steam going through that level may i just give a brief little uh doom and gloom just because i want to like list these facts for the midterm this is more not just right now but two things that i've been watching that i find very interesting as we reach 3100 and it's not disney plus that's not what i'm particularly looking at although i may be watching a lot of it in the near 10 million plus subscribers already yeah Apparently they underestimated demand. I don't I know how that's yeah. I don't know how it's possible. Um, but anyway, I am very interested by the transition from actively managed money flowing in these markets to passively managed, and there are trillions of dollars each year that are flowing just willy nilly into the S and P five hundred and some of these uh, just you know bigger established indexes where it's just a flow of money coming every week from retirement accounts and everything else that's somewhat of a backstop here. But people are concerned that this is going to cause a serious change in the comp. It already is causing a big change in the composition of the market. Um, For instance, I saw the other day that Apple and Microsoft together have roughly the same market cap as the entire Russell 2000. Amazing. That's crazy, right? It's 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 around $2.1, $2.2 trillion, all right? 80% of U.S. IPOs this year are negative earning companies like Uber and all that. Mm -hmm. And the market is still rallying through because there's always money coming in just to buy everything. So it's a really interesting fact to be bringing up here. And I think um, you're seeing a lot of this money transfer. So, you know, one thing you want to think about, and I think we talked about this when uh, it was you, me and Mark in here. Mark gave a really educated stance on this. whole insight in interest rates and things happening there. Um, But I think what it comes down to is at the end of the day, yes, there are still people, no matter how low interest rates are going to go, people are still going, investing firms and pension funds, they're still going to have to be involved because they have to have a certain percentage of treasuries held. But you're going to start to see a lot of people pulling out if they can control their their return on their money. If you're getting a small return on your money, and it's still slightly risky to be in those markets, you're going to transition it and say, look, equities right now, I think is a good example today alone because it's Wednesday and we're very clear on that. Uh, Today, we saw two things come out today, slightly questionable news that in the past may have hit an equity market pretty hard, but we have uh, Jerome Powell basically coming out and saying, I'm done. We're done with this rate cut. We have no intention of going negative. Um, if we continue to see this steady growth, and we all know we've seen steady growth over the last year and a half, two, three, two years. Uh, so we have steady growth going. And then we had the report coming out that U.S.-China trade talks have kind of hit some roadblocks. And what was amazing is these are two questionable things that could ultimately hurt an equity market. And they were desensitized. Yeah, the market rallied. Moved. We were five points off of thirty one hundred. I mean, we were sitting right there. And so I think when people start to recognize, oh, it's getting desensitized, it's just gonna keep going up, you're gonna see a lot of people trying to jump in. And now there is some questions there. I'm not using this as a recommendation to jump in. I wanna be very sure. clear on that. But I think people are gonna start to see things like that and, and possibly lead into more money dumping into the equity markets on top of all the money that's already flowing in. Take gold, for example. I was just looking at the gold market, and gold has been holding um, above that 1440 level that we broke through a few months back. We had that June rally of gold that just took off to the upside like a bat out of heck. And um, We can say hell here. It's all a good. A bat out of hell. and. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so gold is holding that 1440 level. Yeah, it's in a downtrend right now, but you're still seeing money holding there when we've seen equities do what they've done. And usually you see, in the past, we've always seen this gold money dump and 
equities rally or vice versa. So my question is, and I have no answer on this, I have to do more research for myself, but where is that money coming from in these equity markets? And I truly do believe it's coming from all these things we're talking about. Well, Dan, you know who is the perfect person to answer these questions. I think Jeff is. Yeah, Je- both Jeffs, but specifically <laughs> Jeff Brown right. with his PhD from MIT and his uh, senior role in the White House Economic Council. Right. Maybe they'll get to that. I would love to hear what they have to say about it. All right, Dan, thanks for stopping by. So My that's pleasure. our little summary of the markets this week. And without further ado, please enjoy this week's Limit Up interview between Jeff Carter and Dean Jeff Brown. Welcome to another edition of the Top Step Trader Limit Up podcast. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com and on uh, Twitter at pointsandfigures. Welcome to the program, Dean Jeff Brown of the Gies College of Business at the University of Illinois. I am a proud alumnus of that college. Welcome to the program, Dean Jeff Brown. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's really cool to have you on. There's so much we could talk about. Uh, First of all, Let's just talk about the state of college education in general. I think there's a lot of stuff out there where people say this is really expensive. Uh, University of Chicago is going to charge $100,000, they said, a year. What do you make of this? What's sort of driving that? And is there um, a way around it? Yeah, we've hit upon a really important issue, Jeff, because, you know, especially here at the University of Illinois, where we are a public land-grant institution, we care a lot about access. And, uh, you know, if you look back over 40 or 50 years, the primary thing that has changed for public higher education is that states have substantially withdrawn taxpayer support for higher ed. Uh, So if you look back in the early 1970s, um, you know, the University of Illinois budget was about three quarters paid for by taxpayer dollars and the rest by uh, tuition. Today, it's you know, 90% by things other than taxpayer support. It's tuition, it's philanthropy, uh, it's grants and contracts and that sort of thing. So the budget model has changed dramatically. So what are we trying to do here to address that? Uh, for one thing, the University of Illinois has frozen tuition for five years in a row. Uh, second, we've been raising substantial dollars for scholarships. Um, just last year, the university uh, announced uh, something we call Illinois Commitment that basically says if you're a family earning below the median income uh, at the household level and and you're a state of Illinois resident, if you're good enough to get admitted to the University of Illinois, uh, we will waive all tuition and fees. So we're we're doing what we can in a very resource-constrained environment. Uh, And then, of course, I know we'll talk a little bit later in the program about at the graduate level, uh, we did something pretty dramatic, um, introducing a fully online MBA program that we call the IMBA. And we intentionally built that program to shatter the old business model and deliver a high-quality degree at an unprecedented low price. Right. I mean, yeah, we will talk about that. I want to ask you one more question because I think it's a nebulous topic that a lot of people don't understand. They open a magazine like The Economist or you know, whoever, and they see rankings of universities. And you know, you look at Different ones are always the same, top one, two, three, four, five. How can you change? How can that change, right? Because that doesn't happen in the corporate world. Companies move around all the time with creative destruction. How does that change? And does, you know, how do they measure those things? Just in general, I'm not talking about Illinois, but, you know. Sure. Well, so first of all, there there are a lot of rankings out there. I was told at one point, I never verified this fact, but I was told that there are over 70 different sources out there that rank some aspect of business schools. And some of them matter more than others. Uh, at the undergraduate level, there's no question that a lot of parents and families pay attention to, for example, the U.S. news rankings. I try to encourage people not to put too much emphasis on those rankings, even the ones in which we do well, because – Really, college choice should be about fit for the individual. And there are a lot of great schools and a lot of great universities out there. The more I've learned about ranking methodologies over the years, the more I realized just how uninformative and noisy they are. Now, to be clear, is there a difference between a top 10 or a top 20 school and a school that's ranked between 100 and 150? Yes, of course there are. But is there really a difference between being ranked, you know, number seven or number 18? 
truthfully, there's not much of a difference. Some of the rankings use quantitative measures and they might be measuring things that you care about like student-teacher ratios. But they might also be measuring things you don't really care about like, you know, what's the endowment per student? Um, and you may not care about that directly. You might care about what amenities that provides, but they're not measuring those things directly. There's other rankings that, to be honest with you, Jeff, are just nothing more than popularity contests. So if you look at how business schools are ranked in U.S. News, they send a, a ranking survey out to business deans and undergraduate deans or in some cases faculty members. People can choose whether to fill it out or not. You're given a list of like 800 schools and you're asked to rate each one of them on a scale of one to five. And, <laughs> and, and that's the entirety of the U.S. News Business School ranking. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, you can have a situation like last year where the one to five rating of a school, I think it was University of Arizona, uh, didn't change. I think they were like a 3.8 or a 3.9 or something like that. And yet because there was noise around them, uh, they went from a like a nine-way tie for 22 uh, to 31, and yet nothing changed, right? And so I really caution people, um, you know, if you want to use rankings to make sure that you're looking at a top 50 school or something like that, fine. But then go and visit. Uh, think about what the experience is going to be for you, what makes that school unique, what the interactions with the faculty are like, what job placements are like. That's what really matters. And I'm, you know, to tout Illinois' horn for a bit moment, uh, you know, we had one of the highest job placement rates in the country last year. We placed 99% of our students. And, uh, you know, to me, that speaks volumes about uh, the quality of what we're doing here. The thing that I noticed you didn't say, which I thought was important, but apparently it's not for these rankings, is how much professors publish in academic journals. Is there pressure to do that or for rankings or or not? So a really important part of the mission of a university like Illinois or any top research university is to advance our society's knowledge. And we do that through research. There are separate research rankings of schools that are not the things that students and parents are typically looking at. And we do kind of evaluate ourselves relative to our peers on those to understand, you know, how good of a job are we doing at delivering on that part of our mission. To the extent that that plays into the rankings that students and families care about is indirect. So, for example, given that it's deans that are rating one another's programs – there are a very limited number of ways for deans to really know about each other's programs. Um, one way that uh, you can learn about that is uh, by knowing how productive their faculty are on research. Another way is are we competing with them for faculty? A third way is are we competing with them for students? And those are the kind of things that I think indirectly play an important role uh, in how we assess one another. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because. Getting the right professor can certainly change your life. I know for me it did at U of I. I was fortunate to have Greg Oldham when I was there. And I've told this story countless times, but I'll tell it again. You know, here I am, a punk 21-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid in his class on organizational behavior and talking about motivation. And we're arguing about this theory of motivation. And I got really frustrated. And I'm like, that is just bullshit. You're, you're wrong. And he looked at me, he was very offended, and he said, I wrote the theory, I did all the testing, so I know I'm right. And I walked out thinking he was wrong. And um, <laughs> 10 years later, I called him up and I said, hey, you know what? Do you remember that punk kid that was in your class? You're right. And now in the venture capital business, I use that theory probably every week. So um, really interesting um, how somebody can affect your life. How did you come to U of I? Because you're not uh, an Illini undergrad or grad. Yeah, that's right. Uh, although I bleed orange and blue with the best of them now that I've been here uh, since 2002. Yeah, it's your color. Yeah. Um, to the extent that orange is anyone's color, it's, it's yeah. mine. Um, so I'm an Ohio boy. Uh, I grew up in Southwest Ohio, but I went uh, after working and so forth. I ultimately found my way um, to graduate school to work on my PhD in economics at MIT. And one of the first people I met there was a fellow uh, first-year PhD student by the name of Scott Weisbinner. 
And after we both got our PhDs in 1999, he went to the Federal Reserve and I went to the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And then about a year later, he got hired by the finance department here at the University of Illinois. Uh, and so about a year or two after that, I had taken a year leave to go to Washington, D.C. to work at the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Scott and I were still in contact, and he heard that I wanted to get back to the Midwest. Uh, I had young kids at the time and so forth. So he invited me to give a talk here. And uh, I often tell people I have to admit that uh, you know I didn't know a lot about the finance department here at the time. And, and so I thought, well, I'll go. You know, If nothing else, it uh, – uh, gives me leverage with some of the other schools I'm talking to. But as soon as I landed here and I started meeting the faculty and, and learning about the environment here, I was sold. And so I joined the faculty here in 2002 uh, as an assistant professor and uh, went on and earned tenure and moved up through the ranks until I became dean in 2015. Wow. So one of the interesting things I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about this statistic, I think I'm right. If you look at Fortune it's either 500 or 1,000 companies. The CFOs of those companies went to the University of Illinois more than any other school. Yeah, so that's right. If you look at Fortune 500 companies, we are always in the top five in terms of um, undergraduate institution of CFOs. There have been years very recently where we were number one. Um, obviously, that ranking moves a little bit from year to year as CFOs come and go. Um, but th I think that really speaks to the the historical strength and the current strength of both our accounting and finance programs here. Um, you know, we've always been number one or number two in accounting. Uh, we're one of the most important talent sources uh, for uh, the professional services firms, the big four, the next four, and so forth. And those are very natural training grounds for people who go on to become controllers and CFOs. And so that's something we're um, extremely proud of. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a sort of an unknown statistic because, um, of course, Illinois is in a state with, you know, one of the top kind of finance schools around Booth. And then there's plenty of other good finance schools, but it really is great. I was not a finance major at Illinois. I started out as an accounting major and uh, – and I wound up as a marketing major, which was more of my personality. I would be a very bad accountant. Well, let me actually let me let me say something to not so much about your yeah. accounting yeah, skills, yeah, yeah. Jeff. No, 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 the, they're pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> but but to the role of finance, which is so. Let me just note that this last year, again, not to put too much stock in the rankings, but um, you know we were ranked one, I, I think, number thirteen in U.S. News in terms of uh, the strength of our finance department. Um, on a publication uh, ranking, we're we're definitely top ten in terms of uh, of that. So very strong place. What I was going to say though is, um, when people talk about business schools and talk about business school rankings, all too often, what people really have in mind are MBA programs, right? And when you look at a place like Booth or Harvard, that's largely what they're talking about. They're MBA only programs or MBA primarily programs. What's really nice about the University of Illinois and the Geese College of Business is that here we have a very strong undergraduate program. We have 3,200 undergrads that are – that I'd put up against the best students anywhere in the world. They're, they're incredible. Like I couldn't get into that program today. Like, I don't know about that. But you know, no, you, they're, you, they're you've incredible. been a loyal alum and you've been down here. You've no, interacted with them. They're incredible. They are. They are. And that's really always been our kind of crown jewel program. Now having said that – we have a whole suite of graduate programs. We have specialized masters in accountancy and finance. We have uh, MBA program, now the online version. Uh, we have technology management programs and so forth. And so one of my kind of pet peeves as a dean is when people say, well, who are the best business schools? And what they focus on is really just a more narrow question of who has the top-ranked MBA program. I think if you look at the depth and breadth of a business school and you think about across all the programs they offer, graduate, undergraduate, uh, the ways that they're innovating and so forth. I, I very proudly say that we're one of the best business schools anywhere in the world. And our aspiration is to be the best and most innovative business school anywhere in the world. So let's talk a little bit about MBAs. Um, so I'm 57 years old. When I was going through college, 
you know, you, you think about Dustin Hoffman in that one movie, um, The Graduate. The Graduate. And it's all going to be about plastic, son. And so when you're going through business school, it's like, get your accounting major, which obviously didn't happen for me, and then go get your MBA. It was a big MBA society at the time. And now there's kind of a lot of talk about you don't need the MBA. So before we talk about the IMBA, what, what would you think the reasons to get an MBA are or not to get an MBA? Sure. So we really have seen a pretty dramatic change in the relative importance of an MBA over time. I think it's still a very valuable degree, and there are still lots of fields and employers that look for it. Um, the traditional model of the MBA is somebody goes and they study whatever they study as an undergrad. It might be accounting. It might not even be a business field. They go off. They get a few years of work experience. Um, maybe they work in a technical area, what have you, and then they come back and they earn a general management degree where they learn some accounting and finance, but they also learn marketing. They learn strategy, organizational behavior, all of those things. And then they leave the program ready to go and manage teams and manage projects and things strategically. That is a skill set that is still in demand and which is always, I believe, going to be in demand. But a number of things have changed at kind of a macro level. Uh, first of all, a lot of undergraduate business schools like ours provide exceptional training already. And it's not clear if you get a degree from a place like this, you know, how much uh, additional value you'll get from a traditional MBA program. Although, you know, if you've been away from school long enough and you want to refresh skills and so forth, uh, it can make a lot of sense. Um, but the second thing is there have been a, a, a huge increase in non-MBA graduate programs in business. We around here, we refer to them as specialized master's programs. So master of science in accounting or finance or technology, or a lot of schools are now offering a, a business analytics degrees. And that has uh, kind of sucked away some of the demand from traditional MBA programs. A second thing that has happened is that the market has spoken and said that people want more flexible options, not just in the content, but also in terms of how it's delivered. And so the idea of taking two years out of your career spending, you know, $100,000 a year in tuition to go to a top MBA program, um, you know, that that calculation is not as attractive as it used to be, especially when you're in a strong job market where the opportunity cost of being out of the workforce is high. Gigantic. So that all led us to really think differently about how we wanted to do graduate education here. Uh, we always had a very good MBA program, traditional. We had an executive version. We had an evening version and so forth. But, you know, four or five years ago, we decided to launch uh, a fully online version to reduce a lot of the barriers to individuals being able to pursue that degree. Because we believe that the MBA is still a powerful degree. We believe that uh, the education that it provides is still going to be a set of skills that are in demand. But the traditional two-year model of being a 26-year-old with four years of work experience going back and taking two years out, that's just not a model that has – the same future ahead of it as it did in the past. Yeah. Interesting. So you guys have created an IMBA. So if I'm a person, let's say I'm a top step trader person here and I'm down in Columbia trading and doing my job, I can sign up for the U of I program and get an MBA from U of I without traveling to Champaign. That's exactly right. So our so this was a very mission-driven exercise for us. We were all about democratizing education. And we looked around and we said, you know, it's it's frankly a bit absurd that schools are charging as much as they are for these graduate MBA degrees. And it's clearly turning into something that only a small segment of the population can afford. Yet the skills are valuable. So we set out from the beginning to demolish barriers so the first one that we demolished was price. Instead of paying six figures a year for an MBA degree, you can earn your MBA from the University of Illinois Geese College of Business for about $22,000. That's for the full degree. For That's the not full degree. The full degree. That's not per year. That's the entirety of the degree. Second, <laughs> That's you can do it from anywhere in the world. Yeah. If you've got a high-speed internet connection, you can participate in our MBA program from wherever you are. Um, and we have students from over 90 countries already uh, enrolled in the program, and they're having an incredible experience. 
Third thing is we designed it specifically to be flexible to work around your busy professional and personal life. So the non-synchronous part, which is the, you know, kind of the substitute for the textbook and the content delivery, we deliver that through videos that we professionally produce from our leading faculty. That's available to you really at any time. But then when you're actually taking the class for credit, we have live sessions every week. And the live sessions are broadcast out of the studios that we have here in the Geese College of Business. I'm sitting in one of those studios right now. We have an incredible online team, an e-learning team uh, that supports the faculty as they do this. And they conduct live sessions. And so you may, as a faculty member, you might be standing there giving a lecture on you know, something that happened uh, in, in the markets this week. And you've got people, you know, you got a couple hundred people logged in from all around the world and you see each other and you engage in conversation. And so it's a very lively, interactive environment. And what the students love about it is they have an immediate network of fellow students who are not just there as full-time students. These are people that are working at some of the biggest, most impressive companies all around the world. You know, we have, I think, 67 or so of the Fortune 100 have employees in our program. We have entrepreneurs. We have law partners. We have physicians. And um, and these folks are uh, a very impressive group. The average age is in their late 30s. Uh, they're midway through their careers. And they're really loving this opportunity to learn from each other and from our best faculty on you know a Thursday and then walk in the office on Friday and apply it to something the very next day. So the impression I think that people would have on an IMBA, EMBA or IMBA is I'm taking this, I'm alone. And I'm t like, remember, you, you, you wouldn't remember this. When I took Plato courses in the business school back in 1983, you went to the Plato Center and there was the orange screen and you were in a carol by yourself just answering questions on a computer. This is, sounds well, the technology since 1983 is obviously a lot better, but I mean, this is more interactive. This is a very interactive, very engaging uh, cohort-based program. Um, the students get to know each other very well. Uh, we offer, while it's completely voluntary to do the in-person meetups, we do meetups around the country. We invite students here to campus. We had an event in September that we called iConverge. We had over 400 students come from all around the world. Uh, Larry Geese came down and spoke to them. We, oh, held, did some, we held some live sessions. Um, and I got to tell you, it's fun. You, you have these people who meet each other in the flesh for the first time, right? They've, they've known each other online, but they go up and they give each other a hug and they ask about each other's families because, you know, they have all come of age in an era where interacting with people through Zoom and Skype and video calls and email and chat rooms is very normal. And it, one of the things that I've been most impressed by is that our students don't feel that they sacrificed one iota when it comes to the networking and the social aspects of this program. In fact, Jeff, I'll tell you, one of the things that's really cool is if I'm teaching an in-person class in a classroom, and I've got two students over here on the right side that are having a little sidebar conversation with each other, and it's kind of interrupting the other students and it's distracting me. Then as a faculty member, you kind of try to shut that conversation down. When you're in an, a live online session and I'm, you know, as the instructor, I'm talking and having a conversation with students, well, they're using the chat room to have these little conversations back and forth. And we've got people monitoring those, monitoring the chat rooms. And if, if you're having a really interesting side conversation that we think the whole class would benefit from, we actually – we leverage that. We call it out. We say, hey, Jeff, that's a fantastic comment you just made. Why don't you share it verbally with the whole class? And so it actually creates more opportunities for a collaborative work environment than even the face-to-face -face classroom does. So that that's interesting because like – okay, so my MBA experience was I was in Chicago, didn't want to leave Chicago. I interviewed at Northwestern Kellogg School. They rejected me because they didn't know what study group I was going to go into. I wound up going to Booth and, you know, whatever. Traditional EMBA, MBA schools, you have a study group. Do you do that with this IMBA too? Yeah. So they do a lot of work uh, as a group. 
Uh, they work on group projects together. And we've even got the, you know, the technology now allows us that if I'm running a live session and I've got a few hundred people online, and if I want to say, look, I want to give you all 10 minutes and I want you to break into groups and go away and talk about this, and then we'll report back. Uh, the technology allows us to isolate groups of five or 10 people into these groups. They then chat with each other online, seeing each other and so forth. And then when the 10 minutes is up, boom, they're back into the the full class. So technology's come a long way since Plato. Yeah. How about it? I We've never actually, I mean, we've seen each other since you've launched this IMBA, but we've never really talked about it. And so I was always under sort of the impression that you were sort of like on an island, like a work at your own pace thing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But no, this is actually, um, you're leveraging technology to bring education into the future. One of the things that is interesting about economics that you will know for sure is it takes sometimes 30 years for things to really manifest themselves, their full ability. So you invented the printing press and people had to learn how to read. You had to have book binders. It took 30 years. Same with rail. Um, the internet was started really, I, I would argue with, with Andreessen's internet browser, not before that when people could really use it, which would have been, let's say 92, three, four in there. So we're getting closer to that 30 year point. How do you see it evolving and what have you learned since you launched it that you where you know you you said this isn't working we're going to do this to make it work better sure so uh first i think as a proud illinois alum we want to make sure you point out that uh mark andreessen uh invented <laughs> the web browser here at the university of illinois yes he did <laughs> so um Look, it has been for us a journey of constant improvement and very rapidly so. Uh, when we launched in uh, January of 2016, we came out of the gate with a very strong, high-quality product, but the technology has changed rapidly since then. We have built out our team. I think we have a much better sense of what works and what does not in terms of uh, the student experience. And so we're constantly improving. I wouldn't say there were any places where we made any sort of major or significant missteps, but I do think we have definitely learned as we've gone. And let me give you an example. I mean, we we probably underestimated just how social <laughs> these groups were going to become. And we probably underestimated the demand for you know, yeah, we love the fact that we don't have to come together in person, but we would love to get together in person. And so over time, we have started to build out more of these um, immersion weekends. Uh, sometimes, you know, we just took a trip. Uh, it, it was oversubscribed within a few hours of us uh, announcing it, but there was a group that just went out to LA and uh, uh, did a uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to learn about the electric vehicle industry. And, um, and students came from all over in order to do it. And we actually tapped into some of our own students and alumni in the program uh, to get us in front of some of the companies that are doing really interesting work in that space. Uh, we've done immersions in Germany and we've done them in Brazil. Uh, there's going to be a lot more of that kind of stuff coming forward. And then the other thing that's really fun is whenever I'm traveling the country, which I do frequently to meet with University of Illinois business alumni, we now start inviting the IMBA students, and a lot of them come. And so, you know, I had an event at Goldman in uh, New York back in June. We probably had about 20 IMBA students show up at the event. Uh, we've had them at events in Florida, Texas, all over the place. So it's, uh, it's really taking our Geese alumni network and expanding its global reach almost overnight. Hello, everybody. It's Jack again. Um, I hope you're really enjoying this interview with Jeff Brown, but we thought that uh, me and Annie would step in for a second and do a few community questions. Hello, everyone. I'm back. You're back. I am back. How was your time, Annie? What did you do this weekend? Oh, this past weekend, I actually went to a Northwestern tailgate. Oh, my God. Yeah, I watched that game on TV. We lost. Yeah. Wasn't I'm so a fan. Great. It's been a really, really uh, terrible season. They're like <laughs> one and eight now. Tailgate was fun, though, so... Well, hopefully some of our traders are doing better. So what you got <laughs> as far as questions? All right. So our first question is from Muiz. And he asks, what dates in December restrict us traders from trading? Well, if you're in the trading combine, there's no restrictions. You can trade whenever. 
But for traders who are in our funded accounts, they cannot trade between December 23rd and January 1st. And now the reason for that is that there's not going to be really much liquidity around then. A lot of people have closed down their books for the year or be out of town. And as an outright trader, um, you're not really going to be able to take advantage of anything there. More than likely, you're going to get rolled in that sort of environment. It would be different if we were trading spreads or something like that. But uh, those are our rules as they stand. So we'll see you in the new year, Moise. All right. Our second question is from Matish. And he asks, for a not-so-great trader like me – oh, don't be so hard on yourself, Matish. Matish. <laughs> the Micros Trading Combine objectives seem awfully hard and time-consuming. What do you guys think? Well, Matish, first off, you got to stop being so hard on yourself. <laughs> I, I think a, a positive attitude is 90% of the plan. And also, Matish, like nothing that's uh, not hard or time-consuming is really worth doing, I would say. But uh, if you want a technical answer, we actually asked our very own uh, Mark Meadows. And what Mark said was, for a not-so-great trader, extreme risk control is exactly what can help you. I'd agree with that. Also, the pro account is at the funded level. So you can choose the funded account or that path when you pass steps one and two. The question is, can you make $1,500 before you lose $1,000 and do it twice? The drawdown doesn't trail. So we're asking to make three units before you lose two units. Again, twice. So uh, that is Mark breaking it down. So uh, Matish, I think you can do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, You got it, Matish. We're rooting for you. Okay, and our last question is from Martin. How long will it take to be placed in step two as I just hit the first profit target? Congrats, Martin. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, all right, Martin, congrats on passing step one. We asked our support people, your trade report will update at the end of the trading day. You can then expect to be trading in step two on the very next day. It's important to know that this will be a fresh account with a new profit target and new starting balance. The only platform that will take longer to get to step two is T4. We don't have the ability to automate the process for T4, so that may take a bit longer. So, Martin, I hope that that uh, answers your question, but feel free to give a call to support if you have any questions at all. But uh, in the vast number of cases, one day, next day, you're in that step two. Yeah. So, cool. All right. So those are our three questions we're featuring today. Annie, anything else exciting coming up? Yeah, you should also check out, I posted in our community about um, our November campaign. So 30% off all trading combines in futures and Forex. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that goes till November 18th, right? Yes, correct. All right. So this will come out on Thursday. Mm-hmm. You have till Monday to get 30% off. Yeah. That is a screaming discount. No, it's great. Right That'll before. definitely set you up right for Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. uh, 2020. Yep. All right, Annie. Thanks for stopping by. And uh, everybody else... Have fun back in the interview. I'll see you at the end for a little outro. What about the instructors? So John Cochran was an instructor at Booth that now is with the Hoover Institution, taught a very high-level finance class um, in a MOOC, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, and kept stats on it. Never, I never found out how he enjoyed teaching it. Do the instructors enjoy teaching this way? Because it's very different. It's not, a, it's not in person. It's not as hands-on, let's say? It is a very different experience. To me, it's kind of like the difference between uh, being an actor in Hollywood versus being an actor on stage, you know, on Broadway or something like that. Um, They're both very compelling art forms when you use them appropriately. Um, You can tell the same kind of story in both settings, but you have to take advantage of the particular venue or the particular genre in order to make it work most effectively. And so – Those faculty that have come into this recognizing that, look, I can't just take what I did before and now just deliver it in front of a camera, who have been open to innovate and experiment, have really found it a a very inspiring and valuable experience. I mean, the team that we have built around the faculty, the, the videographers and the instructional designers and the media folks and the learning specialists and so forth are really talented and really have a lot to offer. And so there were some growing pains early on as faculty didn't quite know what they were getting into and it took them some time to adjust. You know, you have this person who is a master of their craft and now you've thrown them in a completely different environment. But what's been really rewarding is that some of our faculty who are, you know, some of our most accomplished, best known researchers and teachers who have come into the online classes are now some of our biggest advocates. 
they've really learned to leverage the technology and this approach to to do things they couldn't have otherwise done. And it's it's really been fun to see. I mean, we've got a well, you know, I mentioned Professor Weisbinner, who I met in grad school and is the reason I came here. He teaches an investments course and he has a, a little cartoon version of himself that appears on occasion. <laughs> uh, you know, we've got a, another finance professor, Heitor Almeida, who is a very uh, world-renowned corporate finance specialist, and he's a runner. And so in his introductory video, we've got a drone flying over him as he oh my gosh. runs through the cornfields of East Central Illinois. You really, <laughs> you really get to learn about um, – the students get to learn about the faculty, and we really do have – some of our most distinguished faculty teaching in the program. That's really great. Has it helped? So one of the roles of a dean, and we can talk about what the roles of a dean are, is to recruit new faculty. Has this been something that you talk about when you recruit new faculty? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of many things we talk about. Um, you know, if you're a new PhD coming out onto the market, uh, the most important thing you're looking for is where you can go and be part of a really vibrant intellectual community where you're going to be able to uh, be productive in your research, have people around you that are going to make you better. Uh, and we always start with that because this is an intellectual environment uh, that's really uh, unsurpassed. Uh, you know, there are, we're, we're one of the top research institutions in the country. But yes, we then talk about the teaching opportunities, the breadth of opportunities, the fact that you have opportunities to teach undergrads, grads, in person, online, and a lot of younger folks coming out uh, to join the faculty ranks today, they recognize that online is here to stay. It is the future. And they want to go someplace that does it well because otherwise they're afraid they're going to get left behind. Uh, and, and so it's, it's been a real benefit for us. And I, I think just more generally, it shows that we're an innovative place willing to take risks. And uh, that makes it an exciting place to hang your hat. Yeah, it's a halo effect for you. So let's talk about the dean's job because I think that's a mysterious job to most people. Sure. Okay. So what do, what do you do? Like, what's your daily life like? Your your day to day. So imagine. I mean, if you were going to make a, a comparison to the corporate world, imagine that you're like a division president, right? You've got a a business that you're running, and you're responsible for everything about it. In our case, it's who we admit and how we recruit them and how we market and brand the place, how we pay for everything, how we raise money, uh, the, the success of our degree programs, the intellectual um, enterprise and the research enterprise and making sure that we've allocated sufficient resources to that. Um, so it's really anything and everything that goes along with running a large complex organization with lots of products and services that we provide. Uh, so it's a very dynamic, very challenging, uh, very rewarding job. I mean, it's, it is one job that I never wake up in the morning and wonder why I'm doing it. I know exactly why I'm <laughs> yeah. doing it because, you know, we're, we have a big impact. We're changing people's lives through education, through knowledge creation. Uh, and, you know, I was just on the phone with another dean uh, just right before this uh, from a, a, a school out on the East Coast, and we were talking about what an exciting time it is to be a business school dean. Um, because there are so many forces that are, you know, intersecting at this moment in time. There is no doubt. Technology, changes in international demand, uh, just so many things. And, and the business schools that are innovative and agile and adapt uh, have unprecedented opportunities ahead of them. Those that are a little slow on the uptake are going to run into some, uh, into some real issues. And, and that that makes higher ed a much more dynamic environment than it has ever been historically. And that makes it really exciting. So every day is different, right? I know that's cliche to say, but um, some days I come into the office and I primarily deal with programmatic issues. Uh, some days I come in and focus entirely on strategic level conversations. Other days I'm out on the road telling our story to alumni, uh, trying to get them excited getting them to give back financially or in other ways and spending time talking to other business schools uh, as well as my colleagues on this campus about ways that the Geese College of Business can collaborate with our fantastic Granger College of Engineering, our College of Arts and Sciences or um, the, our College of Agriculture and so forth. So it's a very dynamic, constantly changing job and that's exactly what I love about it. So when I went to U of I, Basically, everybody came from Chicago. There were some kids from around the state. Um, you know, like a, I knew a bunch of kids from Wapella and Peoria. And that 
has changed. Um, a lot more international students than before. And it's been funny to have conversation with friends of mine that went to U of I. Some are really upset about that because it's a state school. We got to admit only state kids. Others have said, hey, I would have loved it if there were international people there because then I would have had an international network graduating and it would have been cool to ex talk to people from different cultures, blah, 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 blah. How, how do you work that balance and sort of what's been the feedback on that for you? So it's a great and really important question. And let me start by saying that I think people sometimes um, overestimate uh, the role that international students play in our undergrad population. We still take in the Geese College of Business more than 70% of all of our undergraduate students are Illinois residents. Uh, the other 25 to 30%, it varies a little bit from year to year, are a combination of out-of-state domestic students and international students. And so at the end of the day, we're talking maybe 15 to 18% of our student total student body is international. Um, we think that's really important. First of all, they're exceptionally bright kids. It's really tough to get in here as an international student. The ratio of applications to admissions is much higher. Um, so they're really smart students. But to your point, it creates a more global environment for our Illinois kids. You know, even, even if the students come here from the state of Illinois, and even if they stay in Illinois, which we hope many of them do after they graduate, they now live in a global economic environment where, you know, your next competitor might come from Shanghai as easily as it does from uh, Silicon Valley. And we think it's important for them to have that exposure. It's also why we really encourage our students to have a study abroad experience while they're in their undergraduate years. Now, what is the case is at the graduate level, if we look at master's programs, we do have some programs that are predominantly international students, even predominantly Chinese students. So if you come here during the summer when the undergrads are away and there's a lot of grad students around, uh, you, you might be forgiven for thinking you just landed in Beijing. Um, but, you know, first of all, again, exceptional students. Second of all, they get great jobs and they stay in contact with us and many of them do contribute back to us. But most importantly, these graduate programs – you know, we are a not-for-profit institution, but we have to pay for everything that we sure. do. Uh, the state of <laughs> Illinois, yeah. uh, we get almost – in the College of Business, we get a few cents on the dollar uh, from the taxpayer. Everything else we do is um, we finance ourselves. And these graduate programs that were designed to cater to international students are very high-quality programs producing very high-quality graduates, and they create excess revenue for us that we can then use – to invest in our undergraduate programs and in our faculty. So really the, the, the residents and taxpayers of Illinois, I think ought to be applauding our entrepreneurial spirit at developing programs that were very attractive. You can think about it as we've generated this nice export business that is uh, improving the resources that are available to us. And we put some of that money into scholarships for Illinois kids and, and the like. So, um, you know, we, th we think it's important both in terms of creating a global environment, but frankly, it's also an important part of our financial model, and, and I'm not uh, embarrassed by that at all. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you get public policy right, um, one of the things, you know, my, my father was a professor, and he said, you know, where you go to college is most likely where you're going to live. Um, so if you go to the University of Minnesota, you're going to probably wind up in Minnesota. If they come to Illinois, Chicago's the closest big town odds are that they're going to wind up, or at least they're going to be exposed to it. And I think one of the other things that's kind of interesting that is a blessing and a curse for Illinois is, is, is Chicago. It's so big. You've got 9 million people that live there with a lot of high-talented students that want to go to school at Illinois with a lot of alumni that you know are natural draw, where if you go to a, a state like, I'm not picking on Wisconsin, but the University of Wisconsin, you got Madison and Milwaukee, they need to import students to fill out their ranks to get the quality compared to, let's say, Illinois or a state like, you know, California that has a lot of people. No, that's right. And that's why um, a lot of schools in surrounding states uh, put a big target on Chicago. Um, I've been told that the Kelly School in Indiana, for example, uh, has more undergraduates from Chicago than they do from the state of Indiana. 
Um, and so, you know, Illinois, uh, the Geese College of Business, I, I think we are doing a phenomenal job of delivering on our mission to the state. I mean, again, more than seven out of 10 of our undergraduates uh, hail from Illinois. Um, to your point, some of the others uh, who we're bringing in from other states and internationally, we hope will stay here. And they're very talented, smart people. And uh, I will say this is something that people often uh, – don't think about. But going back to an earlier conversation about rankings, uh, one of the only tools that we have to make other deans step up and take notice of us is when we occasionally recruit students that they wanted to get to their schools. <laughs> yeah. And so we need to have a little bit more of a national brand. And so it it actually helps us reputationally if we're taking some top students from California, from the East Coast, um, because it, it puts us on the radar screens of these other schools that, um, you know, often too easily overlook uh, the great universities we have in the Midwest. So, you know, it's a balancing act. Uh, I don't think we have any intention at all of ever deserting our uh, commitment to uh, Illinois students. We're always going to have a strong majority contingent of Illinois students here. But I think it's in everyone's interest, including the the residents uh, who who come here uh, to be exposed to the bigger world that's out there. Yeah. And one of the things that um, for people that haven't been to Champaign, um, when I went to school there, you know, there weren't a lot of restaurant opportunities, but um, there are actually very, very good international restaurants in Champaign now because of the international uh, population Absolutely. that's matriculated there. So the eating quality has gotten way off the charts better. You got um, it. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> um. What's next for U of I business? You just started the Magelli program. We did, uh, the Office of Experiential Learning, and uh, that's something we're really excited about. We now have experiential learning as a critical part of every program that we offer here. And for those not familiar with the term, experiential learning really means we're giving our students hands-on real-life experience uh, with a client-based project. So imagine a small group of students uh, working on a project for a client. It could be solving a strategic problem. It could be doing a market analysis and what have you. We've done this through our really successful Illinois business consulting uh, for nearly 25 years. Uh, but we now, as part of our core curriculum for all incoming students, it's going to be a required part of their undergrad experience that during their junior year, they'll take a course in which they do one of these projects. So that's something that's new. Um, other parts of our curriculum that are new include um, every student is going to get a full year of business analytics training, um, and that's obviously a skill set that's in high demand. Um, we, uh, we, we've got a lot of new things going on at both the undergrad and the grad level, and I could probably fill a whole podcast talking about the, the different academies. So, I mean, whether you're interested in going into investment banking, investment management, accounting, marketing, what have you, we've got a wide range of hands-on student experiences that we can offer. Uh, and then, of course, at the grad level, uh, we've got both our traditional and our online programs. So we've really got the full suite of, uh, of things happening here, and it's, it's exciting to be part of. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Dean Brown. And uh, it's exciting to learn more about the IMBA. I think um, people that are listening to this podcast through Top Step Trader um, – might be able to take advantage of it and use it in their careers. Um, I, I, I didn't know as much about it as, uh, as I learned today, so that was great. Well, I'm happy to uh, have the opportunity. I really appreciate you uh, giving me this chance to come on and chat with you, Jeff, and uh, look forward to, to seeing you going forward. And, yeah, if any of the listeners are interested in learning more about any of our programs, just uh, have them uh, do a quick Google search on Geese College of Business and uh, go to our website, and we'll be able to – take you right through and get you some more information, but there really are terrific programs. Yeah. And geese is spelled G I E S. That's correct. For those that don't know. Um, so, well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. And uh, have a great day. Great. You too. Go Illini. Go Illini. Traders. Thank you for making it to the final wicket of the limit up podcast presented by top step trader. We'd like to thank both Jeffs for stopping by this week, but especially Dean Jeff Brown, since he was the guest of honor today. Please remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast. And uh, Thanksgiving is just coming up in the States, and it would really just, you know, brighten up my holidays if you were to do that. Also, be sure to join the private Facebook community. 
It's full of great pearls of wisdom from our traders. And finally, as Annie mentioned earlier in the community questions, it's Top Step Trader Appreciation Week right now through Monday, November 18th. So if you're thinking about starting a new trading combine, they're all 30% off for just a few more days. And who doesn't love saving money? Probably everyone, unless you're some kind of caricature of a Gilded Age robber baron wearing a top hat and monocle. But that's not really our prime demographic here at Limit Up. So visit topsteptrader.com to take advantage of these deals and, uh, hell, check out the blog there while you're at it. Anyway, we'll be back next week with a new, wonderful guest. In the meantime, enjoy the weekend, everybody. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.